Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. So we're working through the Sermon on the Mount. If you haven't been here, uh, if you're not familiar with RUF, this quarter we've been working through the sermon that Jesus preaches, and we're to the passage on prayer, and Jesus teaching on prayer. And prayer is one of those things um, that regardless of, you know, if you're a Christian, um, you feel guilty about it, right, when that word comes up. Like, prayer is the diet of the Christian life in the sense that, like, oh, like, next week I'm going to eat better. Like, I'm going to, no, 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 this time, like, this week I'm actually going to start doing it. And, uh, and prayer is like that. It's the diet we never start. Um, or, or the exercise, or the New Year kind of exercise thing. So there's, like, guilt about it, right? Secondly, there's also mystery about it. What is it? Does it do something? Um, are you talking to your ceiling? Right? It feels bizarre at times. It feels dry at times. Is it accomplishing anything? Um, but lastly, it's also an instinct that seems to be universal. Whether or not you call yourself religious or a Christian, wherever you are on the spectrum, it's this thing people do they, that people, especially in very dire situations, it's almost universal human instinct to want to cry out to something. And... Um, I have a good friend who's a combat veteran and who's an atheist, and we talk about spiritual stuff and we talk about theology all the time. And one of the one of his um, very honest moments, I just we were talking about the issue of prayer, and this is a guy's a combat veteran, and I said, "When you were in combat, did you want to believe that prayer was a thing?" And he was like, "Man, I got to be honest with you, I prayed in combat. Right? It's this thing." Uh, that we also have instincts about. So we feel guilty, we're confused, and we all seem to have instincts to want to be able to cry out to something, to appear to something. So, let's pray, and then we'll talk about prayer. Father, be with us tonight as we consider your word. Uh, Be with us as we think about prayer. And uh, what does it mean to have this conversation uh, with you? And I pray that you would teach us. Be with us now. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, Alright, so Jesus starts this teaching on prayer by telling us what it isn't. And, uh, you know, a lot of times you begin to understand something confusing by telling people what it's not. Uh, people always ask me, what is CrossFit? Is it like weightlifting? I'm like, no, it's not weightlifting. They're like, what's CrossFit? Is it like P90X? No, it's not P90X. So take what you think about P90X, and it's not that. And so that's actually... How Jesus starts teaching prayer uh, is he says, the first thing he says is two things that it's not. And he says this, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in synagogues and the street corners that may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. When you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father, what he sees in secret, will reward you. First thing he says is prayer is just not about other people. It's not about oppressing other people. A hypocrite is somebody whose actions on the outside and their heart on the inside don't line up with each other, right? And so, in this case, they engage in this thing that's supposed to be an intimate action with God, an intimate encounter with Him. But their heart is concerned with something else, right? What do people see? 
Prayer is supposed to be this act of intimacy between God and His children, and its purpose is to experience that intimacy and not impress others. So we actually miss the very heart and the very actually experience of prayer when we start praying, and our concern is what do people see? And what do people hear? So our hearts on others, even though our words seem to be directed toward God. And Jesus actually says, if that's what you think prayer is and that's how you encounter it, then it's actually going to, you'll actually won't experience prayer and you'll get actually the answer yes to all of your desires, right? You'll actually get what you want, which is have people think you think it's cool to speak flowery religious language in front of others. So actually, if that's how you pray, that's one of the few prayers that you, if that's the manner in which you pray, you, you'll always get what your heart desires, which is for other people to think like, they're a weird religious person, right? That's what you wanted, that's what you get. You haven't experienced actual prayer according to Scripture, though. So prayer is not about impressing others, but also prayer is not about manipulating God, right? He says, don't pray like the Gentiles who heap up empty phrases. They think that they're going to be heard for their many words. And then he says something really interesting. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Which is, that's really interesting. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So the Gentiles, right, practice, they think the way you get God to kind of pay attention to you is you go through all these religious actions. And you perform these religious rituals, and then you be verbose, and you be flowery with your language. And the idea is, right, if you're verbose enough, and if you're flowery enough, and you're committed enough, then you'll get God's attention, and He'll do something for you. And Jesus is saying that's actually paganism. And that's actually what that is, is prayer is flattery, right? God's going to pay attention to me if I do it in this manner. And flattery, interestingly enough, is born out of mistrust, right? Flattery is something you do something to someone because you think they don't have your best interests at heart, and so you've got to impress them. You don't trust that they care about you. So when we pray, thinking like, if I pray and just really impress God with my devoted prayer and my lengthy prayers and my wordy prayers, that actually reveals you think God doesn't naturally care about you. And Paul's like, or Jesus is like, that's not prayer either. He even says, God actually already knows what you pray. So all your lengthy explanations about what you want to pray about, God's already aware of. You don't have to use nearly as many words as you think. So... Prayer is not about manipulating God. Prayer is not about impressing others. What is it then? It's a conversation with God. It's an honest conversation with God. And what we're going to do now is we're going to go through the Lord's Prayer and look through kind of three themes that tie the prayer together and ask, what is it? What do we do? And the first thing that we're going to spend a lot of time on is that prayer is about remembering. When Jesus says, here's how you pray says, you begin by saying, Our Father. This is important. Because y'all might or might not be aware of this, but God's name is not God. That's actually a title. When we refer to God as God, that's the same thing as referring to Barack Obama as president or referring to your doctor as doctor. That's using a title and not his personal name. The personal name we actually get in the Old Testament for God is Yahweh. It's given... On Mount Sinai, when Moses speaks with God and says, Who do I tell them has sent me? And he gives the name Yahweh. But Jesus says when you pray to use another name, because there are actually certain titles that are even more intimate than personal names. Right? He says, Address God as Father. Because actually a lot of people can still use someone's personal name and their proper name, right? But only very few people can use the word, the title Father. And this is what Jesus is doing, is when someone tells you what to call them, 
they are telling you about the relationship. So if you address, right, Dr. Hennessy, as Dr. Hennessy, and then he says, no, 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 call me John. What his interaction by saying, you need to call me by a different name, reveals to you that he thinks about y'all's relationship differently than you thought. And it starts to change you. Like, oh, he cares about me. Oh, we have more intimacy than I thought. When someone tells you, no, 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 don't address me by that formal name. Call me Father. That changes you. Right? Jesus is saying, remember, God has a Father's heart for you. He has a Father's care for you, a Father's tenderness for you, a Father's concern for you. And I would even go as far to say that a lot of the confusion we have about this issue of prayer, especially how does God answer prayer, comes from the fact that we fail to perceive the gravity of starting our prayer with calling God Father. Because when you address Him as Father, that all of a sudden starts to reset your expectations, doesn't it? Because titles tell us what to expect from the relationship. And the title God, what does that evoke? That title kind of evokes different things in different contexts, doesn't it? Uh, In the classroom, the title God evokes mystical being that may or may not be distinctly Christian and may or may not exist. That's what that word means in a classroom setting, right? When you're in sin, right, and you feel guilty about things, the word God is this person who wants me to obey really, really badly, and I might have pissed him off. That's what the word God means, right? It evokes that kind of response. If you're in a Bible study, right, or a Christian conversation or debate, God is this disembodied spirit that you're trying to convince kind of yourself and also your friends that you quote-unquote live for, right? The word God kind of evokes different responses from our hearts. In prayer, when we use the word God, God kind of evokes this image of this like semi-aloof genie, like here's this thing, this person I want stuff from, and kind of depending on a bunch of factors... You know, have you been good enough? Is he listening? Does he like you? He may or may not hook you up with some things you want. Right? That's what the word God means when we use it in prayers. And in prayer, when we use that word and that title, really what God is, what we, we don't want to say this, but what he is, is he's a bad Santa. Right? Because we're writing our list of things we want, and we're sending it up, and actually, Santa, probably for most of us, has a better record or a higher percentage than God, right? Everybody saying yes, like, yeah. Santa, on average, has done better on meeting the list than God. Let's all, this is a safe place for all of us to say we, we actually have experienced higher percentage of wins from Santa than we have from God. That's okay, all right? But that's what we think, right? We say prayer, we say God, we actually think, dear Santa. And Santa's job is to get us the stuff we want, Right? And so we want the G.I. Joe F-14 Tomcat with the sweep wings, right? Everybody nod. Yeah, that's what I've always wanted. And so we come to Santa and give me what I want. And then what happens is one of two things, right? Just like one of two things with God, which is, A, we get what we want, which is awesome. And the awesomeness of getting what you want, just like Christmas morning, lasts about 37 minutes. And then it wears off. And then we're all angry, ungrateful American kids, right, by 10 a.m. on Christmas morning. But we got what we wanted. So that was good. And, or the other thing is, we don't get what we wanted and we're angry. Right? We're either angry towards Santa, but more often in case, right, we're angry or we're questioning God. We're like, where were you in this? I prayed. I've been doing the right things. 
And the frustration is not a result of the fact that prayer is a mystery and, and God's just going to do what He's going to do. That's what we think. Prayer is just a mystery and I prayed about it and God's just going to do what He wants to do. I don't know, right? That's how we chalk it up. I think that frustration is largely a result from the fact that we haven't understood the import of Jesus saying, begin your prayer with our Father. Because fathers don't care nearly as much, a good father doesn't care nearly as much about what you get as they do about who you're becoming. And when you think, oh, my father cares about the kind of person I'm becoming, and he's going to answer all my prayers with a concern about the kind of person that I'm becoming, and not whether or not I get everything I want, then all of a sudden, I think if you look back on your prayer life, you'll see... God was at work as a good father. He was not as work as a, at work as a bad Santa. Because a father's concerned with who his child is becoming, and you know what one of the most important words that a dad has for children that he loves? No. That's one of the most important words that good fathers have. There are other words that good fathers have, right? Yes, let's wait, let's talk about it, I love you, let's figure it out. Trust me, right? Dads use all kind of important words. But my girls ask me for things all the time. They want to play on the iPhone all the time, the iPad all the time. They want ice cream at every juncture during the day. They want candy. You know what? I say way more than yes because I'm actually trying to be a good dad. I'm not saying I'm a good dad, but I'm trying. I say no way more than I say yes. Because my concern is about who they're becoming. And to help them to become strong women of character and love and wisdom, the last thing I would want to do is give them every single thing their little heart jumps at. We actually think not getting what we want is a cause for questioning God. Right? And maybe what we need to wonder is maybe not getting what we want is evidence that He's a good Father. My children at this point, (laughs) y'all know them, At this point, they don't have the rational capacity. If you explain the biochemistry and the neuroscience behind what an 8-year-old brain would do with a pound of gummy bears and ice cream at 10 p.m. at night, they wouldn't understand what you were saying, right? If I actually tried to explain why I said no, it wouldn't make any sense to their brain. They could never comprehend it at their age right now. They can't understand why they're not getting what they want. And so I have to say, trust me, right? I know better, actually know you better than you. Jesus is telling us, start your prayer with our Father so that you'll know that He's not Santa, that He's your Father. And His answers to your prayers are going to make way more sense to you when you process them through His fatherhood. Because you actually only, we only experience, we only expect to hear yes from Santa God, right? And you only experience to hear yes from terrible fathers. Terrible fathers who are guilt-ridden, who are trying to buy their kids off. Right, But wise, good, and loving parents don't care nearly as much about what you have as who you're becoming. So they say yes, and they say wait, and they say I love you, and they say trust me. And a lot of times they say, you actually can't understand why I'm not giving this to you right now. So trust me. I've got to teach you some things. Everything you want is not good for you. You're not going to understand the structures I've put around your life, but trust me. Jesus is trying to get us to stop judging God by our circumstances, which is what we do. 
right? I'll trust him if I get what I want. And instead, he's telling us to judge our circumstances by our Father's love. And so when we respond, I don't like you, God, because you didn't give me what I want, right? Or I'm questioning your goodness, God, because you didn't give me what I want. We're like children who say, you don't love me because you won't let me have ice cream at 10 o'clock at night. And he endures good fatherhood in that situation, right? Of just like, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Actually, he doesn't apologize for disappointment. He's saying, I'm going to have to disappoint you because I love you. When we start our prayers with our Father, it reframes everything. It reframes our expectations. Secondly, Jesus begins in the prayer and he called, we're, the next part of the prayer is a reordering. So first, remembering the relationship. Secondly, a reordering of our lives. And this is, there's this threefold request, right? Everybody's familiar with. How be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And this is a threefold petition that all complement each other. And this is, God, may your name be the thing that's important in this world and not mine. That's a big request. Father, may your rule be recognized in my heart and in the world instead of my own desire for my plans and my uh, design. May it be on earth as it already is in heaven. Now, what's Jesus talking about with this threefold request? What does that look like? Right? May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um... I've spoken about this before. I'm not going to go on this at length. But there's a lot of confusion sometimes in Christianity about what is the will of God for your life. Right? We're saying here, like, God, your will be done. And um, we can talk about this more later, but nowhere in the Bible does it ever endorse anything remotely like this issue of the will of God is what you do is you pray a lot and pray a lot and pray a lot about these certain situations in your life, whether or not you should take the internship, whether or not you should break up with the person who you should room with next year, whether or not you should move in with these people, whether or not you should transfer, and then God's going to like reveal His will to you in those situations. The Bible never teaches anything close to that. That is not what the will of God is about. Actually, what that is, is that's an ancient pagan practice of divination, which actually the Bible would condemn. Say, no, 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 that's not how God's work. That's a pagan practice. Because God, here's the big shocker. God doesn't care if you study chemistry or poetry. He doesn't care. He cares that you know His love and that you're becoming a loving chemist or a loving poet. He cares about the kind of person you become. He doesn't care if you study chemistry or poetry. We panic when we hear, well, wait, God doesn't care about this? He doesn't care if I intern at Dropbox or I go work at a summer camp this summer? No, He really doesn't care. And we panic. And the reason we panic when we hear, well, He doesn't care about those things, is it actually reveals that we placed all our hope in making the right decision right there because those circumstances were going to make us happy. And if we choose the less desirable circumstances, all of a sudden we're unhappy. We actually place the hope of our salvation in making that right decision right there. And Jesus is like... I don't care whether or not you go to camp or to Dropbox. I care about the kind of person you're becoming and I care whether or not you know that I love you. Because at the end of the day, it's not summer camp or Dropbox that's going to save you. And it's not summer camp or Dropbox that has the capacity to change you into a rich and deep and caring and loving person. It's the grace of God which works in any of those contexts. So it doesn't care where you room next year. And it doesn't care what you do this summer. And it doesn't care what you do after college. The will of God... For our life. The Bible actually speaks really directly about it. You don't have to wonder what the will of God for your life is ever again. It's spoken about very directly all over scripture. I'm going to give you the most direct verse. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 After this, you can never again say, I'm not sure what the will of God is. And say you still believe the Bible. Okay? 
First Thessalonians 4.3. Everybody get it? This is it. Write this down. This is the Bible verse. This is what it says. This is the will of God for you. That's the Bible verse. That's not me speaking. Your sanctification. Done. <laughs> Got it. That's the will of God for you. What is sanctification? Right? Sanctification is the big biblical word of becoming the person Jesus wants you to be. Which you can do at summer camp and you can do at Dropbox. And you can do it on what, at, at Toyon and you can do it at Robley. And you can do it in a single and you can do it in suites. You can do that anywhere so God doesn't care where you live next year. Okay? Sanctification means somebody who's washed by His grace is being transformed by that grace. And so to pray, His kingdom come, your will be done, is to pray that our posture in life would be no longer be, what do I want, and what do I think, and what makes sense to me, but what does God want, and what has He said? And you begin to become a person that loves, and your love lines up with His heart. So you pray, your will be done in my sex life. I pray that I would love chastity. That sex would no longer be something I do outside of covenant, which is a taking process, but inside of covenant, which is a giving process. That your will be done in my thought life to love purity. That your will be done with my money. That means I love generosity, which actually means you do something with your money. That your will be done within the church. That means to love God's family. That you start to love the church, which is the least cool thing to love, right? But it's the thing Jesus loves the most. That your will be done... With our enemies, that means we start loving our enemies. That your will be done with your time, that we not allocated all of it to me, but actually we see all of our time is given for the purpose to serve God and to serve people. Father, may your will be done with my words, that we speak the truth and we speak it beautifully. When we pray, God, your will be done in our lives, what we're not doing is bending God's plan to our desires. We're asking God to bend our desires to His plan. It's almost like prayer is kind of the exact opposite of what we thought. You're not bending His plan to your desires. You're asking God to bend your desires to His plan. God's not a cosmic wish-granting genie that's trying to uh, manage all of our wish lists, right? Our Amazon wish lists. I have one. Y'all should check it out. But that's not what God's doing. He's on a mission to rescue the world by grace through the death and resurrection of the Son, making all things new. And His will for you is calling you into that mission, into a comprehensive calling on all of your life, which entails two things. Loving God with everything you have and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's God's will for your life. You can do it in any dorm on campus. You can do it in any abroad program that Stanford offers. That's His will. We think prayer is getting God to do what we want. Your will be done is actually prayer working back on us, asking God to transform our desires from our little me-centered dreams and our me-centered senses of justice into hearts that are loving Him and loving our neighbors. So in our maturity, we think prayer is give me, give me, give me. What Jesus is teaching us is that prayer is really change me, change me, change me. And um, that's what the call to reorder is and the request for Jesus to reorder the world and our lives according to God's plan but then thirdly, we ask for requests, right? There's a, re- there's a request aspect of prayers. 
And there's three things there, right? The, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. What is daily bread? We're asking God to care for us physically. These are the daily concerns, right? In a first century, poverty-stricken agrarian economy, daily bread is the daily essentials. They don't have DoorDash. They don't have so much food that we actually have an industry, billion-dollar industry, built on burning off our excessive calories, which is what the fitness industry is in our country, which is a sign of like horrible things, even though I love fitness. We have so much food, we're paying people to help us to burn it off. But that's another question. That's, um, anyways, right? <laughs> Daily bread is a request that God give us what we need today. And what if we just trusted God for what we needed today? What was that? That was the extent of our prayers. Because right now, what's ruining this moment tonight and what's going to ruin your capacity to go get donuts after a large group is the fact that tomorrow is already wrecking your life tonight. Right? Huh? Real talk. Real talk. (laughs) What if today, right, we didn't focus on everything we don't have, but rather looked at our circumstances and said... I asked my good father to give me what I needed and what happened in my life today and what is present in my life right now is what I need. And I trust my good father. If we thought that in our prayers, I suspect it would start to change us pretty radically. The next request is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We're so unfamiliar with this concept of forgiveness, right? Right. That because mostly, and the reason we're actually pretty unfamiliar with it, I think even all of us Christians are pretty unfamiliar with what it really means. Because what we mean when we talk about forgiveness in most of our relationships, when we hurt somebody or somebody hurts us and we talk about forgiveness, and I've really forgiven them, or what we like to say because the word forgiven actually feels too intimate and awkward as we say, it's alright, it's okay, no worries, right? We have our other forms because the word forgive feels too powerful a lot of times. And what we usually mean in those situations is, I perpetually hold this against you. I hate you, always and forever. And I don't trust you, but I'm going to be nice. That's what we mean when we say it's okay, right? That's what we mean when we say no worries. Because the concept of forgiveness actually is very foreign to us. And it's very hard for us to comprehend that forgiveness is... I will never hold this against you and I will never let this affect our relationship. The love and affection I have for you is just as great as it was before this offense. Or when you put that into the context of all our relationships, we're like, yeah, we don't, we don't really do the forgiveness thing. God doesn't relate to us the way we relate to each other on this issue of forgiveness. His approach is not like, I'm disappointed in you. You're kind of always going to be second class in my kingdom as a Christian. But I'm going to be nice-ish to you, right? The Bible over and over again says that forgiveness is something so profound that actually when you experience, when you actually really understand that God is like, I will never hold this against you. I'm never going to bring it up again. And the love and affection I had for you before this is no different than the love and affection I have for you now. That's so profound that when you experience it, what Jesus is saying, what the Bible says over and over again, that a necessary consequence or fruit that follows from that is you become a forgiving person. And God's forgiveness really means that He no longer holds anything against you. And God's plan is that His church be a virus of forgiveness in the world. That I don't think God's plan is a culture war in this country. I think God's plan is for Christians to profoundly forgive and love their enemies. 
And it happens, it's supposed to start and happen in here among Christians, among brothers and sisters. So that the gospel, and, and then it starts seeping out into the world and into our relationships. And I think in a lot of ways, for a lot of Christians, there's really two sweet moments in your experience of the gospel in life. And the first moment is the first time it begins to dawn on you what forgiveness is and how much it costs Jesus and the fact that He lovingly gives it to you. And that's a sweet moment, and maybe a lot of us can remember that moment. But I think the second sweet moment that's better than that one, and maybe this moment repeats itself a couple of times, is the 1,000th or the 10,000th time you ask God for forgiveness. And He says, you know that time it was sweet the first time? That hasn't stopped. I'm not disappointed 10,000 times later. I'm not angry with you 10,000 times later. I'm not holding it against you 10,000 times later. That moment's actually sweeter than the first. We think that moment's more unbelievable than the first. So we request for our daily needs. We request God for our spiritual needs. And then lastly, we ask for help, right? Maybe this is the prayer we need the most to pray the least. Because we're tired of being ourselves. Right? Lead us not to temptation. Deliver us from evil. I'm tired every day of being weak and being myself and figuring out that my battle in my life is one-on-one, me versus me, and no one's helping me. And Jesus is saying, God is here and He intends to be with you. God, I'm weak. Keep me safe for myself. Don't waste your prayers on making a bunch of huge promises to God that you forget that you don't keep. Right? We like to do that a lot. Hoping that he's going to be proud of you and that he's going to think, great, I'm so proud of you. This is awesome. I don't need a God, and actually you don't need a God who's simply going to love you and love me for all the great things about us. That's pretty easy. We need a God who's willing to get in the trenches with us about the worst things about us. And Jesus is saying, that's the kind of God this is. He's the one who wants to get in the trench with you and fight with you about the worst things about you. Jesus is saying, bring your worst things in prayer. And ask for God's help. So, I want to close by just talking about what is God doing in prayer. Uh, what do we? What what then should we expect? Right? If we're going to pray, we're going to embark on this process. What should we expect? And what we need to see is that prayer is not fundamentally about getting things from God, but prayer is about getting God, and that's His purpose in this conversation. And the reason that we're usually confused about prayer is that we're actually staring at all the things that we've wrapped our hearts around. These are the things that are most important to me that take up all my time and all my energy and all my anxiety. And we think prayer is, here's what I love. Hey God, come here, come here, come here. here. Will you help me out with this? And what prayer is, is turning your face from those things and looking at God. Prayer is God actually prying our hearts off of those things in order to see who God is. Job, right, in Scripture, is the greatest sufferer. He loses everything. He loses his health, and he loses his wealth, and he loses his family. Right? His children, spouse, and everything. And what the book of Job is, is a man praying through suffering. And what the book of Job, the way it functions is this. is Over the course of the book, as he prays through suffering, what's happening is he's focusing the lens of his heart. He has a sense of who God is and what God should do. And as he prays through that book, he's twisting dials. And and what's happening is God is slowly coming into focus. 
So Job is at a complete loss at the beginning of the book. And at the end of the book, he understands more deeply and more fully and experientially. He actually felt the understanding. And he finds that if he has God, he can do anything. Because having the love of the Eternal Father is having everything. Prayer is focusing our hearts on God. The purpose of prayer is to bring the detail and the relief and the, and the crispness of His character into our hearts so that we see more fully who He is and we understand more deeply everything about Him. Prayer is focusing. That's what it is. If you don't know what to do, here's, do this this week. Open up Psalm 115 and pray through it for 20 minutes in one sitting without looking at your iPhone. Just try it this week. Just try it. Even if you're not a Christian, just try it. See what happens. Pray through each line. Ask yourself what it means. Ask God what it means. Ask God to make it true to you. Do it for 20 minutes. You'll panic at some point, probably at like minute three, when you realize this is the longest I've ever prayed in my entire life. Right? Then at like minute 18, you'll look down and probably think, I could probably do this for like another 12 minutes. And it'll blow your mind that you could, you're kind of open to that prospect, right? Because it was terrifying in the first three to five minutes. Just try it, right? Experiment this week. If prayer was just getting God to give us what we want, if it was just, then it would just be a mechanical stuff-getting process, right? We have Amazon Prime now. That works better than God, so you don't have to do that anymore, okay? <laughs> Maybe that's what God uses. But that's another theological question. <laughs> But that's not what prayer is for. Prayer is for encountering God. It's talking to the Creator. It's discovering that He's also a Redeemer. That He's our Father. And through prayer we don't get stuff. We get God. And having stuff actually pales in comparison to having Him. And even Jesus says, You know actually God knows what you ask for before you ask Him. Right? That's the most intriguing part of this passage to me. Jesus is teaching us to pray and He's saying, By the way, God knows everything you're going to ask for. And so the logical question is, well, then why pray? Unless, of course, the purpose of prayer is not about securing things from God, but the purpose of prayer is to see the face of God and to experience the presence of God and to open up your heart to God. A bless, the blessing of prayer is actually the contemplation and the discovery of who God is and how He loves you. I'll close with this real briefly. This weekend... I have plans for my girls that they don't know. One of those plans, y'all have heard me talk about this before, is to take them to the country corner. I've planned it. I have foreordained it. You might say I've predestined to take them to the country corner, depending on kind of where you are in the theological spectrum. But I already know that they're going to ask me to do it, to take them to the country corner for ice cream. But here's the other thing. I want them to ask me this Saturday. And I'm not going to take them until they ask me. The promise is there. It's predestined, right? Predestined, ordained, whatever you want to say. <laughs> and at the same time, it is conditioned on their request. Right? The reason I want them to also ask me for it is because I want to get in their face. And I want them to see the love of my face for them. I don't just want to give them ice cream. I want to be their dad. And I want them to experience my fatherhood. 
So if you want to know how does God answer prayers, does, does, does He need our prayers to do what He wants to do? Absolutely. Is He going to do what He wants to do regardless? No. Could He have predestined exactly what He wants to happen? Maybe so. Does His predestined, foreordained plan still require that we pray? Yes. Why? Because the purpose of prayer is that you experience His fatherhood. He wants to get in your face and He wants you to see His face. And that's how He's going to take you to the country corner. (laughs) Or the new heavens and the new earth, right? All right, let's pray.